Today, I'm picking up, this is the second half of what we talked about last time we were together. So dating, what was it? Today's dating responsibly. The last time was dating readiness. So they fit together. You need to be ready to date. And then if you are dating, these are, you're going to learn some guidelines, some principles. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 11. We're going OT. But I want to start with a little story, or a contrast, pardon me. So if you have ever seen a Caucasian shepherd dog, you would have seen an animal that looks like a horse. Like, they are massive dogs. They're, like, there are pictures of, like, average-sized women, like, you know, 5'6", 5'7", next to one of these dogs, and they look like children. Like, these animals are massive. Like, they can grow up to 250 pounds. They're huge. And Caucasian shepherd dogs are, they're native to, like, northern China, eastern Europe, and they often use them for bear hunting. So... If you don't know what bear hunting is, the way it works is they will get a couple of their dogs and a couple hunters together, and they actually starve the dogs for a few days to prepare them for the hunt, and then they will take them to where they know there's bear and set the dogs loose, and then they follow the dogs who are tracking. It is a little bit barbaric, yes, but the reason they starve the dogs is because these dogs, because they are hungry, they'll run faster, they'll run harder, they have this desperation. And the hope of the hunter is that the dogs will be so desperate to eat that they will work together to go and pursue the prey, go pursue the horse. There is a kind of teamwork that hurts the people around you. I think the teamwork between a hunter and a Caucasian shepherd dog in this situation is not good teamwork. Yes, they're working together, but the hunter is purposefully inflicting pain on his dogs to make them do what he wants. That's bad teamwork. That's not what you want in a relationship. I want to compare this to an illustration that Mark Birch used however long ago he was here. It was like six weeks, wowzers. Long time, January 6th, or I guess a month, five weeks. He talked about horses, and horses can, are used to pull weight, obviously, and an individual Clydesdale horse, right, like those big ones that they use in the Budweiser commercials, they can pull 6,000 pounds. That's a lot of weight. But when you pull a second horse, or when you attach them together, two horses, they actually pull 18,000 pounds. So there is a kind of teamwork that is good for the team. Both horses working together, egging each other along, end up pulling harder. They end up pulling more than they can do individually. Teamwork is not necessarily good. You have to have the right goals. You have to have the right values as you fit together in the pursuit of a goal. So what I would like to teach you today is what I'm going to call sanctified ambition. When we speak of dating relationships, what attitude ought you have in that relationship? What I'll call sanctified ambition. And that, in a dating relationship, will help you pull together. And will help you pull far more weight than you could pull on your own. I have a big idea for today. Very simple. Life is meant to be spent. So... What I want you to learn from Ecclesiastes 11 is life is meant to be spent, and then I want to take this principle and apply it specifically to dating relationships. So Ecclesiastes 11, is, we're going to do verses 1 to 4, but we're just going to cut it in half. So the first one is verses 1 to 2. My first point is spend your stuff. Ephesians 11, 1 and 2 says this, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If you have never read that verse in the Bible, I'm not surprised. 
It is in the middle of the Old Testament, and it is a bizarre sentence. It is not a phrase that we readily use. Raise your hand if you've ever told someone to cast their bread upon the water. That is a lie. We don't, it's, yeah, yeah we'll, it'll be a coach and connect moment. We, when we read Ecclesiastes, it is wisdom literature. It is written to people, and it was intended to make sense. The first audience that heard this, heard this phrase and learned something. They heard, oh, cast your bread upon the waters? Okay, I see you, I see you. They learned something from it. To us, it's so weird. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, this entire book is meant to teach people how to live. And it applies to all manner of things, to wealth, to work, to relationships, to faith. And when we get to chapter 11, in a 12-chapter book, almost at the end, the author of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, he turns and he starts talking about money yet again. This phrase, cast your bread upon the waters, has been taken various ways by commentators, by, by interpreters of the Bible. There are some people who will look at it and they'll say, well, I think it's meant to be like a geographical reference. So in the ancient Near East, like so modern-day Palestine and Israel, they didn't have a lot of rain. But there were places that were floodplain, and the rivers would overflow. And then when the rivers receded, you would plant seed where the water had overflowed, and that dirt was really good. And you would have high yield of, of crops in that area. So casting your bread upon the waters means you cast your, you know, your seed where water used to be. And in one sense, you're like, uh, yeah, sure, I guess. But what is so compelling about that? What does that teach you about wealth? I don't really think that's what it means. The other way that people understand it is that it is, in, it is involving trade. It's involving venture capitalism, if you will, making an investment into something. And this, I think this makes a little bit more sense. It's an old, it's an odd expression, but it communicates the idea that to make money, you have to take risk. You cast your bread upon the waters. You hope that it works out. I am 31 years old, so ancient to, compared to some of you. And I remember when I was in elementary school, we played a computer game. This was on Windows 95. So some of you don't even know what that is. But Windows 95, there was this game called Oregon Trail. Did any of you play Oregon Trail? Yeah, that game was fire, right? I actually grew up in Oregon, so we loved this game. We were like, this is how we settled here. And then people would be like, aren't you Mexican? What do you mean? And I was like, doesn't matter. My people came here in the same way as yours, on wagons, which is obviously historically inaccurate. But the point of the story is we always played this game. And we got to play in the computer lab. And the, what was funny about the game was that you would leave, you know, from whatever, Kansas City, Missouri. And then you get on the, your little caravan, and then inevitably people start dying. Right? You're like, oh, this person had a baby, and they're doing great. Nope, baby's dead. You're like, oh, no, this person died of fever. And you're like, what? Can they take Tylenol? No, it was a different world. Like, in older times, travel took a tremendous amount of effort, a long time. These groups of people, the, the game is based on a historical event, you would not arrive with the same people that you left. It would take you years to get there sometimes. So there would be different people. There would have been people who died and people who were born along the journey. This is how all of life has worked for all of human history until the last like 300 years. So when Solomon says, cast your bread upon the waters, he's making a reference to the reality that travel is super risky. Like you're taking a, a, a risk, you're taking a chance. And this is even more true of, of trade. When people traded in the past, they, they were really like 
in every sense of the word. They were sending it. They were hoping that it worked out. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, as the saying goes. Right? So casting the, your bread upon the water, if we were to use colloquial modern terms, uh, we could say something like 60% of the time it works every time. Or we could say you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. Right? These phrases, they're meant to communicate, you got to go for it. Like, just go for it. Take the chance. Take the risk. Shoot your shot. Cast your bread was the ancient Near Eastern version of that. So verse 1 is telling you, go for it. You have to go for it. If you want to make bread, you have to go for it. You have to cast some bread upon the water. Take the chance. And then verse 2 follows that and says, give a portion to seven or eight. And the phrasing of the sentence is kind of odd to us because you're like, seven or eight what? Like, are you talking about charity? Give to seven or eight charities? I don't understand what the connection is. Well, giving to seven or eight is talking about diversifying your portfolio. In today's world, that's how people invest. If you go and you give money to a mutual fund, that mutual fund takes your money, lumps it together, and invests it in a bunch of different things. Like, they buy technology stock. They buy water. They buy gold. They buy manufacturing. Like, they want to get multiple investments because you never know what the market is going to be like. Sometimes you take a huge loss in one and a huge gain in another. And their hope is if I diversify, I'll always be winning. That is what Solomon is getting at here. He's saying divorce, diversify your portfolio. You have to send it. And the way it worked in their time was that you never sent just one trader. You sent a bunch of them because someone might die along the way. You never sent one boat you sent a, multiple boats. You sent a fleet. You never sent one caravan. You sent multiple caravans and multiple wagons and multiple horses or camels or donkeys or whatever it is that you were pulling the stuff with. You always sent more, 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 more. You had to invest money. You had to cast your bread upon the water to make that bread. You need to take more chances to, make, to have success. In a small way, I experienced this when, when I was playing ball uh, at my last school, I had a coach who, he challenged all the players, like, so all the guards, because we would break into position groups sometimes to play, and he was like, you need to have a, what he called a money move, you need to have a money move, like your go-to move and a counter, and I was somewhat green at the time, so I was like, my move is a crossover, and he was like, everyone can do a crossover. You need to have a hezzy crossover, or you have a crossover into a step back jump shot, or a crossover into a spin move, or blah, 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 blah. He went on and on, and ultimately his point was, if you have one move, everyone can guard you. You become a pylon. Like, you're not a threat on the team. If you want playing time, Freddie, you need not just your money move, you need your money move and a counter, and maybe a second counter. Diversify your portfolio, if you will. This reality is true in all of life. If you want to be better at something, you need more than one skill. You need to be able to do multiple things. Solomon was the king of multiple things. He was good at basically everything. When we read his story in, in 1 Kings, we realize that this guy was tremendously wealthy. If you just read through 1 Kings like 1 to 10, 1 to 12, how he became king and how he ruled for 40 years, you'll know that he drew taxes from his own people. He would take people, he would recruit them and say, you're going to go work on this project, you're going to go work on this project. And he would tax everybody. So he drew income 
from taxation. He had a, a powerful military and was considered very, very wise. So neighboring nations would pay tribute. So we're told in 1 Kings 4 that other nations sent him stuff all the time. They sent him horses. They sent him gold. They sent him servants. So he was getting income from other nations. He was getting income from taxes of his own nation. And then in 1 Kings 10.22, we see him practicing what he preaches. He tells you, cast your bread upon the waters in seven or eight things. 1 Kings 10.22 says this. The king had a fleet of ships at Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Which I like, Those are not all the same value. I'm, I don't know if a peacock is worth as much as gold, but in their time, apparently it was. The point is, Solomon cast his bread upon the water. He sent a fleet of ships, not just one, in case one got lost at sea. And he would go every three years. It didn't matter how much he already had. Solomon was willing to invest. Solomon was willing to send it. He was tremendously wealthy. In 1 Kings, we learn that Solomon was so wealthy that in, in chapter 10, we're told he, he only drank from cups made of gold. Like, you know that the drinking cup that you keep next to your bed of water, that if it falls, it falls because it's plastic and you don't care? His version was gold. He was so wealthy that they didn't even bother weighing the silver that he took in. This guy had stacks on stacks on stacks. How is it that he was so wealthy? He cast his bread upon the water. So Solomon teaches us a theology of wealth in that you have to go for it. You have to, you have to venture. You have to try to do anything in life. There is a way to misunderstand Solomon's theology of wealth. If we just stopped the sermon here and y'all went home, you would have learned nothing about how to manage the wealth. Solomon reminds us, you actually, you have to go for it. It takes effort to make it. He doesn't give us that much information, that much guidance on how to spend it. But the rest of the Bible does. So I want to go to two passages in the New Testament that teach us that wealth is a gift from God. And because wealth is a gift from God, even through your efforts, we, both can be true. You make tremendous effort, and God blesses that effort. You get wealth. And the Bible teaches us that because wealth is from God, people always matter more than stuff. In our world, sometimes we think they're basically the same. But in the scriptures, people matter more than stuff. There are two passages in the New Testament that make this explicit. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is making the argument in, in Matthew 6 that don't bother saving up everything you make. Don't bother hoarding up all the treasure because it, it does get, it gets stolen. It, it rots. It corrupts. There is something more valuable than stuff. What he implies here, he makes explicit in a parable he tells in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, the parable is like verses 1 to 12. I'm just going to read the last four verses. Jesus tells a story of a man who is as a steward. He, he manages wealth for, an, for a, a wealthy person. And Jesus speaks about this man in a way that commends a particular lifestyle. This is what he says. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. 
One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus is giving a theology of wealth where it's not just the having it that matters. It's how you use it. And what Jesus teaches is, no, no, you take that money and you make, for your, you make friends for yourself. The only thing more valuable than stuff is people. So a, bio, a biblical theology of wealth tells you, take the stuff you have, make more of the stuff that you have, and then use it, spend it to make relationships with people. This is significant for us. I don't think this is a common idea. The Bible teaches us exhaustively that people matter more than stuff. Perhaps the greatest example about the temporary nature of stuff, of your material possessions, is seen in the life of Jesus. A man who wandered around and never had that much, who was homeless, depended on the giving, the generosity of other people. And when you looked at the life of Jesus, when he taught about why it was that he lived the way he did, he would say things like this, Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus valued people so much that he didn't even care about making wealth. And he valued people so much that he was willing to spend the most valuable thing he owned, his own life, to save people from sin and death. When the Bible gives us a theology of wealth, it teaches us that people matter more than stuff. And then Jesus models that in never worrying about the stuff, but worrying greatly, spending greatly, giving his own life so that people could have eternal life. Jesus spent his life so others could live. And this is a great example for us that people matter more than stuff. The first thing we learn in Ecclesiastes 11 verses 1 to 2 is that you have to spend your stuff. You have to spend the bread to make the bread. There's a second thing we learn. Second, you must find your hope. So we're going to read verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 say this. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Solomon builds on his theology of wealth by reminding us that perspective is everything. There is a reason that not everyone casts their bread upon the water. Fear. All of us experience it. All of us are afraid. We're all afraid of something. And especially afraid of failing. And there are people that are so afraid of failing, so afraid of what if, what if, what if, that they won't even try. They won't even cast their bread upon the water. And this reminds us that there are, in fact, some realities that we just have to deal with. Life in this world, there's a couple of things you have to deal with. First, time doesn't stop. Like, it, it just keeps going and going and going. You, you can't pause it as much as you want to. The sun rises and sets every single day. Right? The weather patterns keep rolling. It gets, it's rainy, and then it's sunny, and then it's snowy, and then it's back to sunny, and life never stops. Time doesn't stop. So if we're afraid of the what if, what if, what if, and we keep hesitating, you 
run out of time. The other thing is that hard times don't stop. So it's not just that time doesn't stop. It's that hard times in particular don't stop. They don't seem to end. All of us live through hard things. All of us live through difficult, difficult things. The question is, how will you react in those things? I want to give you an example from my own life. I, I think there's two ways that people react to hardship. There are those that freeze. I don't know what to do. What if, what if, what if? I'm not sure. And there are those who step up. I have mentioned many, many times, we have two little boys, my wife and I, and the oldest one is named Isaiah, and he is very particular about the water bottles he likes, and I was trying to win some brownie points with my son, so that we were in the grocery store, and he liked a particular water bottle, and it was like $3, so I was like, we're just going to buy it, and my wife very explicitly told me, that water bottle is dangerous, it is not made for children of that age, and I looked her in the face and I said, I'll decide what's made for my son or not. I'm, I'm the dad. What's up? So I, I told her, this is a gift from daddy to his boy. You wouldn't understand. I know what I'm doing, which was a stupid thing to say. I buy the water bottle. We get home. I give it to him. It lasted two days. Day one was totally fine. I was like, I see no issue here. Day two, he was running with the water bottle in his mouth, because kids do that, and the spout was hard plastic, which if you know kids' water bottles, you do not give them hard plastic mouths to anything because they'll wreck their face, which is in fact what he did. He was carrying it in his mouth. He tripped while running because he does that and landed on the water bottle with his face. It shredded the roof of his mouth. So you know how you have a hard palate that turns into a soft palate? His soft palate just had a gash. It looked like a trench was in there. It was wild. It, it, was, it was nasty. He, I didn't realize that he fell. I just heard a thump, but he falls all the time, so I didn't react. And then I hear, ah, and then I'm like, okay, that sounds panicky. I look, and there's blood streaming out of his mouth. And I was like, uh, 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 uh. and Rebecca was like, go get a rag. And I go, and I'm like, she's like, I need warm water now. And I turn on the water. And you know how faucets very clearly have 180 degrees of rotation? I pushed it, what I thought was 180, and I was like, Becky, we don't have hot water. It doesn't work. She walks up, pushes it to the hot water. I just turned it on. I was, I was frozen. I was lost. I was like, my kid's bleeding. This is my fault. I don't know what to do. I'm frozen. Hard times, hard times, hard times. My wife is a trained nurse who works in the emergency department. So she saw the blood, and she like her mommy heart was obviously like, my husband's an idiot. And then she was like, I better step up. And that's what she did. She said, go get me the rag. She picked up Isaiah. She undressed him. She turned the water to hot because her husband couldn't figure it out. She took the rag, stuck it over his face, carried him upstairs, put him naked in the bathtub so blood doesn't leak everywhere. And I was like, all of those are great ideas. I totally could have thought of that. If you asked me today, I could explain every step you ought to do. But in the moment of crisis, frozen. So many of us live like that. And it's not always the traumatic things. Sometimes it's just a big decision. Sometimes it's a big risk and we're like, oh my gosh, what if, what if, what if? I can't move. Solomon is reminding us, life is just like that. There is no way around that. If you look at the, the rain, if you look at the clouds, you will never sow. Solomon's reminder 
is that there will always be a reason to not shoot your shot, to not cast your bread upon the water, to not send it. And ultimately, what will empower you to go for it is if you know the right things. The difference between me and my wife is that she just knows more stuff about medicine, about healthcare. She knew how to react in that moment. What do you need? What do I need to react well in hard times? Because this passage reminds us, they're inescapable. You're just going to go through it. Time doesn't stop. Hard times don't stop. What do I need to go through the hard times? Psalm 104, 14 and 15. This is the psalmist speaking about God. God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from heaven and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. I have to cast my bread upon the water. But ultimately, who is it that makes the, the bread grow, the grain grow, who makes the seed sprout? According to Psalm 104, it is God. God is the one who is ultimately responsible for sustaining, upholding, bringing about life. So what is the one thing that can help you not freeze in the moment when you face hard times? Well, knowing that God is the one who's working in the hard times and the good times. And I think this reality needs to be believed by everyone. The unpredictability of life, the good times and the bad times and the back and forth in between reminds us that we need help. We need someone else to step in for us. And that is what God says he does in Psalm 104. God has his hand on all aspects of life. There's another passage that says he's working all things together for our good. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that, no, no, if you trust in God, you can know that whether there's storm clouds, whether there's rain, whether there's sun, God is working for your good. You don't have to freeze. Just go for it, and it's going to work out. What we learn, not just from Ecclesiastes, but from the rest of the Bible is that God is working so we can have hope. So I want to combine these two things. God is, God is working and you can have hope combined with the, like cast your bread. You got to shoot your shot. Life is meant to be spent. If you combine these two ideas, we, com we arrive at our third point, which is share your life. I want to read the whole passage one more time and then I'm going to give you sanctified ambition applied directly to dating relationships. Ecclesiastes 11, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In this passage, we see the merger of two complementary ideas. You have to go and get it. Like life is meant to be spent. Go for it. Cast your bread upon the water. And you need hope. You need a reason to not freeze. You need something that drives you, that gives you hope in the midst of the good and in the midst of the bad. If you combine these two things together, 
I think we see the principle of what I want to call sanctified ambition. This go for it, but with the right goals. This, this go for it, but be working for the good of other people. And if we're going to take this principle and apply it specifically to dating relationships, there are three rules that I want to share with you. Before that, I'm going to give you two disclaimers. I recognize that as we jump into dating, you're already thinking some things. You're like, is this guy know what he's talking about? Does this guy have anything good to say? What if I don't like what he says? Do I have to listen? There are things going on in your head. Maybe you've had horrible dating experiences and you're not ready to hear. Maybe you've never dated and you're like, I don't know if I want to take advice from you. You're like 31. I, I don't know what's going on in your head. So I want to give you two disclaimers. The first is we need a right understanding of dating. So before I can tell you anything about dating, I want to remind you, you don't actually need to date. You can date. It's good to date. But you don't need it. You need friends. You need relationship. You need people. But as to dating, dating is what we can call it a, a privilege. It's not a necessity. You're welcome to do it, but it does not add or remove your humanity, what, what you actually are as a person made in the image of God. We need to understand that you don't need dating, you do need friendship. And on top of that, if you decide to jump into dating, dating is by nature meant to lead to something. The nature of relationships is that they are supposed to progress. Friendship leads to dating, leads to marriage. That's the trajectory. That's the design of what it is. Every relationship grows, it matures, it deepens. I'm going to use the example of Pokemon to show you. Pokemon can teach us lots. All right. When you first start playing Pokemon, if you remember way back in the day, Pokemon yellow or, or red or blue, whatever it was. I don't even remember. It's been a long time. But you could, you could pick your little character, and everyone started with Charmander or Squirtle or Pikachu. And if you played the game for 10 hours, 50 hours, 1,000 hours, if you still have the Charmander after 100 hours of the game, my conclusion is that you stink at the game. I, the point of playing the game is to help the Charmander get the experience points he needs to grow into a Charmeleon, come on, and a Charizard. I know some stuff. Yeah, I'm well-versed. Thank you. Thank you. You're too kind. You're stop it. Stop it. If you start with a Squirtle, you want the War Turtle, you want the Blastoise. Like, these animals are meant to grow. They're meant to progress. The whole point of being the Pokemon trainer is that you mature the creature. Dating relationships are like that. You start a relationship with a person, and the person is supposed to mature. Your relationship is supposed to mature. If you're 100 hours in, and it's the exact same relationship, you might not be good at the relationship. It might not be the right relationship. You need to know some things about dating. You need to believe the right things. You don't need to date. You do need friends. And if you are dating, it is meant to lead to something. There are correct things to believe about what dating is. And my second disclaimer is we need the right attitude. I think even if we believe the right things, right? Like it's not an ultimate thing. I don't need to date, but I want to. And yes, you're right. It's going to progress to something. We tend to be either really high or really low in our attitude about what dating is. We're really cynical or we're super romantic. 
right? We don't shoot the middle. We're, we're at the extremes. We say things like, no, no, no. It, dating is the worst thing. It's so hard. It's, it's terrible. Uh, the reality is, that, like, dating can be hard. It takes effort to build a relationship with someone. But it's, it's not always hard. It's not always horrible. It's not always bad. It can be fun. It should be fun. Or we go on the opposite. We're like, no, no, no. Dating is literally the best thing. If I'm not dating, and we, or if I'm dating someone and we break up, I need a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend literally 24 hours from the moment I broke up because it is the best thing. I'm like, that's not true. You, you need friends. You, you need, you, everyone needs friends. But it's, it's not the best thing. It's not the worst thing. Or people use different language. Uh, it is the most important thing. That is the only question I will ever ask anyone, are you dating? Like, uh, that's weird. You don't even know my name. But okay. We, we ask people all the time, Are, you're dating? Are you guys going to get married? We've been together three days, bro. Relax. <laughs> people act like it is the most important thing. Or they'll do the opposite. They'll act like it doesn't actually matter. They're like, yeah, whatever, date whoever. And like, that person is not a Christian. What do you mean, whatever? They're like, oh, that person like doesn't super treat you well. Like, you have literally nothing in common. Why are you dating? Ah, it's not a big deal. I'm like, it, well, it's not the most important thing. But it is a big deal. This person will shape your character. It matters who you date. So we need to think the right things and we need to have the right attitude. Those two disclaimers in mind. I want to take sanctified ambition and give you three rules. When I say rule, these are Freddie's suggestions. I think they're based on this scripture. I think this is good advice that will lead you to life. You don't have to take it. I'm not God. I'm just a pastor. But I want the best for you. I want you to be successful. I want you to be responsible in your dating relationships. So here's the three things I would tell you. First, you need clarity, not intimacy. Clarity, not intimacy. There is a whole line of thinking that people will use in regards to dating where they'll use exclusively the language of, of fun, of experience, of I, I want something new. And there is a value to this, right? Like, there are fun things you do while dating, right? You take couples pictures and you go on dates. There are things that you don't really do with just your friends. But when we speak of experience, the reality is that there is a lot of experience that you do not need to live through. That if you do live through, brings tremendous pain and regrets. When we speak of experience, the, the question that no one asks is, well, what experiences? What experiences are necessary? Like, what experiences should I have in dating? Because biblically speaking, there are some we should not have. But people go for it all the time. There are things that we ought to pursue and things that we ought not to pursue. And what if as you're dating, your experience is different than the next person? Then you start comparing your relationship. Why is my relationship not like their relationship? They've been dating three minutes, and they seem so much happier. They already say, I love you. And this person, we've been dating six months, and they don't even say that to me. They, they must not love me. You have this comparison, and comparison ultimately kills your joy. When you speak of dating exclusively in the language of fun or experience, of trying something, it leaves you super vulnerable to pain. So what we need is we need clarity, and clarity specifically in your intentions. Earlier I said that dating is meant to progress to something. Dating is meant to progress to marriage. That's what it is for. That doesn't mean you get married tomorrow. 
but you have to understand there is a destination to this bus, to this train. If you get on here, it is going there. It can take a long time to get there. You should be wise. You can take your time while you get there, but that is where it is going. There are a lot of people that will jump into a relationship with someone they know they would never marry. Or worse, they know they should not marry, but then their emotions win their heart and they're willing to go for it. If you do not have clear intentions, it leaves you remarkably vulnerable to pain and regret. There's a, a pastor in Texas who he gave this great illustration. He says, dating without the intent to marry is like going to the grocery store with no money. You either leave unhappy or you take something that's not yours. Dating has a purpose. You need to have clear intentions as you jump into dating. And on top of good intentions or clear intentions, you need clear boundaries. This is the reality of what dating is. So much of the awkwardness of relationships is due to the fact that people don't set or do not respect any kind of boundaries in their relationship. Boundaries, of course, does mean the physical, but it goes beyond the physical to the emotional and, and even to the spiritual. When we look at relationships that have dissolved, one of the main reasons that things are awkward is because the other person knows you too well. You date someone, and you date someone for, let's say, a year or two years, and then you look at that relationship and you're like, like, I don't like being in the same room as them. They know everything about me. Like my highest highs, my lowest lows, my biggest fears, my biggest dreams. We, we've, we've been physically intimate. So they, they know things, of, not just about me, but they've seen me. They know me and they see me. And it feels weird to be around them. They know more of me than I wish that they did. When we, in a dating relationship, pursue not clarity but intimacy, it leaves us remarkably vulnerable. These boundaries are not meant to ruin your fun. They're not meant to ruin your experience. They're meant to protect you. That's what boundaries do. We put up fences to protect what's inside, not to keep things out. So I want to give you three examples. I'm gonna, these are three examples of boundaries in the physical and the emotional and the spiritual. Physical boundaries. When you are dating someone, I think it is wise to hold hands while dating and kiss when engaged. Now, I recognize that that is remarkably rigid. And there are some of you who are thinking, that's BS, bro. I would never do that. There's nothing wrong with kissing. It's not a sin. And you're right. I'm not telling you it is a sin. You have to hear what I'm saying. I'm saying if you want to date responsibly, what kind of boundaries would you, what could you enact that would protect you from shame, from fear, from regrets? I think you could hold hands while dating and kiss while engaged. My own story is that I, I've been married to my wife, Rebecca, for eight and a half years, but there was a girl I dated for two and a half years while I was still in the States. I left the country after we broke up. I, that is not a person that I would ever want to be in the same room as. I have, she knows far too much about me, has seen too much of me. We've experienced far too much together, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It would be really difficult for me if I was in the same room as her. It would be exceedingly painful for me if my little boys met her and asked, how did you meet our dad? This woman, who is not my wife, knows a lot about me. 
And as I look back on my relationship and I think, what kind of boundary would have protected me? Would have protected my family. I think holding hands while dating or kissing when engaged certainly would have helped. I think there are also emotional boundaries that we're really soft on. You start dating someone and you see them every single day. You start dating someone and your friends don't see you for three months. And then we're surprised where our friends are like, dog, we don't see you at all. Like, I don't even feel like I know you anymore. There is an emotional boundary in putting a time limit on how much you spend together. Not because you don't care about this person you're dating, but because you are ensuring that you're moving at an appropriate pace towards the intended outcome. Lastly, spiritually, I think it is exceedingly easy, particularly in the Christian church, to try to jump into your marriage roles before you're actually married. We see this all the time in couples, where they start acting like a husband and wife, and they share, like, debit cards or credit cards, and, you know, you buy a couple's devotional together, and you start doing things, like, as if you live together. But I'm like, but you don't. Why would you act like you do? This is a boundary, a spiritual boundary, on top of an emotional boundary, on top of a physical boundary. These are suggestions. You don't have to do this. I'm giving you examples of the kind of things that you could do to maintain clarity rather than intimacy in a dating relationship. That's rule number one. Rule number two, compatibility, not mimicry. In dating relationships, it becomes so easy for people to become exactly the same. A part of that is normal. My wife speaks like me now. Eight and a half years later, we have similar mannerisms because we live together. It is normal to say, use the same words, talk the same, speak the same, make the same facial expressions. In dating relationships, though, people so quickly lose who they are as they whole hog pursue this other person. Part of the effort behind sharing the dating readiness triangle was that you would know who you are before you jump into a dating relationship. If you know who you are, that makes it so much easier to see if you're actually compatible. I am this kind of person, you're this kind of person, are we going to like butt heads or can we sync up? And as we sync up, are we syncing up because you're just pretending like everything is fine, you're mimicking me? Or are we syncing up because we're in fact actually compatible? Dating is an extended interview, if you will. You spend time together, you experiencing together, and in all of that, you realize, is this person compatible? Are they the kind of person I can live with for 75 years? Because dating is meant to go somewhere towards marriage. Rule number two is compatibility, not mimicry. Rule number three is checkpoints, not timelines. If dating is meant to go somewhere, you date and it's meant to lead to marriage, it is appropriate that would eventually get there, but you need to have some framework for how do I know where I'm progressing? And I know people are very fond of timelines. They'll talk of, you know, like one, the one-year thing or the every-season thing or two years or finish school or have the career in place. They give you chronological markers to help you know when it's right to be together, to be married, this person that you're dating. I much prefer the language of checkpoints. Uh, I want to give you an image. If you remember playing Need for Speed, anyone? Need for Speed? That game was fire. That game was fire. All the guys, no girl apparently. All right, Need for Speed. It's a racing car game. And you're supposed to get to the next checkpoint before the timer goes out. And if you get there before the next checkpoint, it adds to your timer. And then you're in the negative. And the goal is you're racing. 
You want to be in the negative. You want to be under the, the person who's leading the lap. You want the fastest lap. So you're always trying to get to the next checkpoint. Dating relationships are sort of like that. You're going somewhere, and there are checkpoints along the way. And you're, the way that you can manage it is what is an appropriate amount of time to get this, to this checkpoint. You need to agree what the checkpoints are, and then you need to agree on the timing of those checkpoints. The, the three that I give people when I meet with people many, many times for premarital counseling or for the premarriage class we teach here, and as we talk about it, when people ask me, Freddie, when do you think is the right time? I, I say, well, I think there's a couple checkpoints. First, uh, has this person met your family and your friends? Like, you should not marry someone that has not met your family and friends. Like, that's, you're merging a life together. I, you're going to live with them for 75 years. They need to know who your people are. That's checkpoint one. What's checkpoint two? Well, after the family and friends, I, I think at some point you realize this person is incredibly compatible. What would you say to someone who's super compatible in a way that no one else is? That would mark them out from the crowd. You know, these are my friends, but this, this person, they're different. Well, I, I think you would say, I love you. I, lo I love you is a checkpoint then. They've met my family and friends. We're dating. We've been together a few weeks, a few months, whatever it is that you think. But now I'm like, no, no, this person, they're, they're, they're special. They're, they're different. I think they're really compatible. I love you. Okay, now you're at the I love you. What comes next? Well, at some, the next checkpoint then is the engagement. That, that's kind of the three. If you're saying I love you, it becomes exceedingly difficult to stay within your boundaries. If you've already met, or if the person who you're interested in, who you're dating, has already met everyone you know, it becomes really hard not to include them in all of your life. My point in giving you all of these checkpoints is not to give you rigid rules, but to give you some guidelines for how it is that you ought to date. If you Google dating, or if you go to the bookstore and look up books on dating, you will find myriads of things that will teach you how to act. My hope is that from Ecclesiastes 11, you see this principle of sanctified ambition of, no, no, I have to go and get it. It takes effort on my part. I must pursue it. It does not just happen. And if you take those three, th or if you take that sanctified ambition and then apply it to three rules, the clarity, not intimacy, compatibility, not mimicry, and lastly, checkpoints, not timelines, I think this will give you the ability to date responsibly. My hope for all of you is that your dating relationship is like a pairing of Clasdale horses, that together you can pull more weight. If you remember what we talked about two weeks ago, you are to carry before you care. You do need to be able to carry your own weight. But together, two can carry so much more. My hope for you, should you choose to date, is that as you find someone, that together you can agree upon these rules. Make your own version of these three rules. And together, you can build a relationship. And if it does not work out, it doesn't always work out, you can walk away with no regrets because you had rules to direct and guide your relationship. Dating responsibly can and should be a transforming relationship. Our life, not just our wealth, but our life is meant to be spent. I want to help you spend yours responsibly. Let me pray for us, and I want to remind you, you're welcome to challenge me or ask me any questions about anything that I've said.
in center court after the service. All right, I'm going to invite the worship team up. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word that in Ecclesiastes 11, we can gain a principle that directs us on dating relationships. Father, I recognize that there was a lot today. There's a lot for people to think through. I pray that you give them tremendous wisdom, that they would not just whole hog accept everything I've said because I've said it, but that they would look at the scriptures, that they would look at the principles, and that they would discern what is, what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Father, every person here needs to know you. Every person here needs good, healthy friendships. I pray that they find that here. And should they choose to date, Father, I pray that you help them date responsibly. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.